to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Masi Oka, an actor you may know as Hero from NBC's Heroes, but who also worked at Industrial Light and Magic as a digital effects artist on the Star Wars prequels. And we focus in on one of his biggest contributions to Attack of the Clones, the effects of the seismic blast on the asteroid belt. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 72, Masi Oka. I'd love to talk a little bit differently than I'm sure you, you normally talk in interviews because not only are you an incredible actor and comedian, but your start in the industry and, and something that you're still very passionate about is, of course, computers and software and your work in Industrial Light and Magic and your work on the prequel specifically. Um, I'd love to start even before that, though, with growing up. What were your inspirations? How did Star Wars even impact you back then? And, and what led you to then working at Industrial Light and Magic? First of all, speaking of Industrial Light and Magic, my heart goes out to uh, Grant Imahara, who we lost uh, recently, you know, very young. He, I didn't know him quite well, but, you know, we were at the island at the same time. He was a colleague. I've, I've met him outside, you know, when he goes on Mythbusters. A great guy. Just rest in peace, you know, and thoughts out and prayers uh, to him and uh, to his family as well. So. Uh, but but in terms of Star Wars, you know, I think it was the first, I recall it was the first VHS, you know, back in the day, so it was a VHS case, right? VHS, the movie I ever saw. My mom told me that I actually saw Star Wars. It was the first movie I saw in the theaters as well with my uncle, but I have no recollection of that because I think I was like two or three or something like <laughs> before. But the first VHS I got also was Star Wars. And yeah, I remember watching that like so many times, you know, like over and over and over again. You know, this, this was original, of course, a classic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I mean, Clearly, it definitely, you know, clearly it had a huge impact on who I was. What I, I love the space battles. I love, you know, the lightsabers. You know, like, I remember, like, building Legos, and Legos would always be about, like, trying to build X-Wing and Death Star and crashing things into each other. I said <laughs> Kendo because I love wow. the idea of, like, sword fighting, sand, uh, sword fighting, but also, you know, the idea of lightsabers was kind of cool. We all, I remember, like, in Kendo practice, we would always pretend to be, you know, Jedi's and, <laughs> you know, right. and kind of uh, battle out at each other. So it definitely had a profound impact on me um, in terms of, you know, what I like. And it, it clearly, you know, it, it stuck with me for the whole day. However, when it came to Industrial Light and Magic, though, I, I didn't know what it was. Coming out of college, I was at uh, Brown University, you know, and then I was mm-hmm. at my career fair trying to figure out, oh, okay, I actually have to get a job now. <laughs> and... You know, it's like, okay, well, everyone's going to Microsoft because it pays well and those kind of places. Uh, so, you know, I was just looking around. And all, you know, it was like the the top places were like Sun and uh, and Microsoft and those places. And, you know, so I went to the career fair. I was like, okay, I'll probably get a job there. And then there was a film that was Iron Man. It's like, well, what do you guys do? It's like, <laughs> yeah, I know what film it is. It's like, oh, wait, you... You guys are working on Star Wars, and you can make movies from computers, and it was like such a foreign concept to me. Ironically, I you know, I took all these computer graphics courses and animation courses in a in school in my as my undergrad study, but I didn't realize it was actually a job. You know, Pixar was still nascent back in those days as well, right? Never thought about CG and CG animation as a career path, and then uh, I said you know what, I would love to interview you guys and go to San Francisco. 
And then the funny thing here is that, you know, they, because they were ILM, I guess, you know, they knew everybody wanted to work there. Sure. So they said, no, I'm sorry, we can't pay for people to fly out, you know, hmm. for our interview. Right. So what I did was I actually took an interview at Microsoft uh-huh. to have them fly me out to the West Coast because uh, Brown is in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And then I asked them, can I sw- swing by San Francisco before I go back to home, uh, back to my college? because I wanted to uh, visit some people there. Yeah, sure, no problem. So I took a Seattle-San Francisco Rhode Island trip, uh, you know. Uh, just, so, so I took an interview at Microsoft just so I could get a, a free trip to San Francisco to take an interview at Industrial Light and Magic. That's great. So. That's so great. I, and then, I mean, when you got there at ILM, what were your initial projects? What was your focus? Um, kind of what did you start your career even doing? Well, first of all, when I got there, I remember the interviews because, like, you would expect ILM to be this huge, like, you know, glorious, like, you know, Hollywood with all these statues and everything's really cool. I remember getting there, and, and it's like, it was called Colonel Optic, and I, right. I was waiting at HR, right? So it's like, it was like a dentist office. <laughs> like, it was like, what? These bungalows, and nothing was there. Uh-huh. And I'm like, am I really at the right place? And then they said, okay, well, you know, we want to talk have you talked to some of the supervisors? And then I remember walking into like building D and the other buildings. And once you go inside, it's like, whoa, a different world. But outside right. it was like, literally, you could not tell uh, that this is where all the Star Wars stuff, you know, all the mm-hmm. ILM exists and all these um, movie magic was being made. So, so that, was, that was kind of, first of all, interesting. Um, but I remember like when I first got there, the first project our route is always, you know, everyone starts out as a TA. I don't know if it's still back in, um, still the case, but people work as a TA, which is a technical assistant, and then an RA, render assistant, and then you go into TD, which is a technical director, mm-hmm. uh, where you are in charge of shots. That's how it was back then. I'm not sure if it's still now, because I wasn't in the animation department. I was more in the, I wanted to go to the TD route. Mm-hmm. So basically, first thing, you know, I got there, and we we were working on supporting all the shows, but we were backup, uh, backup managers. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's the ILM equivalent uh, or the CG equivalent of you know bringing coffee to people. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, basically, all we do is just backup data. And back in the days, you know, any, nothing was automated. You know, they, ha- they didn't have robots, so we were the robots. We would open packages of tape, uh, back, you know, uh, these uh, backup tape that had like four gigabytes of data you know, that could be stored, mm-hmm. we would open them, we would shuck them up, right? take the, the plastic casing out, and then we would take that, we would take a request of a backup, and then go to the backup machine, uh, <laughs> the, rent, uh, the, the machine room where there's all these like, you know, uh, tape, backup tape players, and we would put the tape in, and we would start the backup, and we would log it. <laughs> that literally was it for about a few months. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and, you know, and we would see the, what the projects are, you know, we see SW one, you know, mm-hmm. Star Wars SW one would come in, you know, you know, we have we have all these, you know, major, you know, like everything we work on, all the movies that they were working on, we see that, but you know, for us it was very not too glorifying because you know we just basically were just uh, backing up tapes. However, we got to see images of dailies that would just like creep up on our monitors, right? You know, uh, and those those were cool, but I was kind of questioning myself. It's like, wow, I spent four years like working on the Bachelor for this. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, around me were people who worked at 
SGI, Silicon Graphics, who had masters from uh, UC Berkeley, who had doctorates from mm-hmm. MIT, going the same path. So I was like, okay, well, I guess this is just, you know, paying your dues. Um, right. So that that was definitely the first experiences. And then pretty much from there, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, yeah, I picked up random projects here and there that I really liked uh, working on, um, you know, because I, I was a programmer, so I always mm-hmm. wanted to program, okay, how can I make this more efficient? How can I make this more uh, automated, you know, et cetera? You know, I learned a lot about, like, high-speed networking and bufferings and learned yeah. things that really didn't have to do with computer graphics uh, just because I, I, I wanted to uh, kind of entertain myself in some senses, you know, uh, keep myself challenged. Yeah. And then a lot of this work kind of got uh, got seen um, by the supervisors. And then, you know, they were trying to develop a new branch of the TD department called an R&D-TD, Research Development Technology. So we were starting to use Maya back in the day right. and, you know, moving away from uh, Dynamation. And Maya had a lot of uh, plugins that you could create. And the TD folks aren't, weren't necessarily all programmers. You know, they were very skilled, but, you know, they are great at writing, writing maybe random man shaders and, you know, and scripts and stuff, but weren't plugin writers. They weren't C coders, right? So... I had a, uh, back in the days, uh, you know, we had a huge VFX supervisor uh, who's named Habib Zargapur. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did like a Twister and, uh, you know, he, he was the VFX soup on a lot of, you know, and he did like the pod racing for mm-hmm. Star Wars 1 and things like that. And he like, he was trying to create this new department and he was cherry picking from the TA and the RA department to kind of like be his quote unquote code slave in some senses, right? To work, to create code for, and execute his vision. Um, but it was really cool. You know, like, so he kind of like picked me and said, Hey, would you write some of this stuff for me? And I started writing scripts and I said, huh, that's kind of cool. Like, and you're fast. Can you also do these? And then now, and then Habib would start to like talk about his like blue sky ideas and stuff. And it's like, huh, you know, I want to bend particles this way, or I want to be able to control these, you know, noise fields in a certain way. But dynamically and visually, et cetera, and right, and it was kind of and it was cool because like these are new graphic CG challenges, mm-hmm. and uh, and working in a place that nobody else has really explored. So for me, it was really cool. And uh, at that time, he was working on Perfect Storm. Right. Uh, so he had all these ideas that he wanted to work on, uh, and he said, "Hey, you want to do this?" Like, sure. And then that's kind of like uh, the big break I got, I guess, within ILM. I mean, that Perfect Storm show and, and the work that ended up in that movie is still so groundbreaking and still so incredible. I mean, I still remember, like, just the freak out of, like, they got water right. You know what I mean? And and, and really just kind of escalated from there. I'd love to just, I mean, that in itself uh, is, is a warrant for a, a, an hour-long interview. I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, that process and kind of helping create, create that effect. Yeah, back in the days, I mean, now it's, you know, you know, all within plugins and people can do it really easy. Right. But, you know, um, Fluid Dynamics was, you know, to simulate was very difficult back in the days. RIK kind of tried to do with their water software and it was just like standalone engine. Mm-hmm. So you had to like do a- engines and then uh, you had to run simulations and then spin them out. And, you know, we had, we had like, I think it was Stanford folks who were specializing in these and I forgot his name, John something, you know, he was like a PhD and he, he was running all these simulations, you know, we had to implement like the marching cubes algorithm. And, you know, nowadays, you know, back, 
it, it, it like it was like the precursor to what's called like P level sets, right? So mm-hmm. we basically with computer graphics, you have to make sure it looks great, but it doesn't need to be physically 100% accurate. It just has to look great and it has to be has to work easy and fast and accurate. But it doesn't need to be physically accurate. So there was this constant battle between well, the physics does this, so we have to make sure it looks like you know that you know. So we have an in-house physicist versus you know like someone like Habib who's like visual. No, no, no. We just need to look cool. So you know, let's try to substitute this with multiple springs. You know, to simulate elasticity and like you know uh, and and, uh, and, and the inertia forces between the particles and stuff. So those were the kind of interesting. But I remember like literally studying Navier-Stokes equation uh, back in the days and just trying to find ways to like uh, discretize that. Uh, and some papers was starting to come out. Like I think Yost Stam, who used to who works at who now works or who who used to work at Alias back in the days or mm-hmm. Dynamation and then you know he created a seminal paper on discretizing fluid dynamics. You know was talking about that. So we were trying to implement that, and of course, like the secret recipe is not in there. His his demo works perfectly, but we when we try to recreate it, it's like, oh wait a minute, this doesn't work. Um, but it, it was really a lot of uh, approximation uh, and a lot of run, rendering uh, power. I think it took literally like one day to render like one frame mm-hmm. at times. So there was this huge shock called TZ20. We called it. That was a big wave that swallowed George Clooney's boat. Right. at the end the monster wave so right. that was the, the monster shot and we had to get we had to really do all these simulations but right. among the other stuff we were able to simulate waves and stuff and, and kind of use deformers because it didn't fold onto itself so it, it was all about just you know tweaking like the y-axis and stuff versus and the y-fields versus that tc20 shot it had to curl on it, itself mm-hmm. right so that physics simulation took a long time, so that was like the most most challenging shot I remember for a perfect storm. But uh, but yeah, it was definitely a lot of hours of like, just trying things out, simulating, and you know trying to get what's physically real versus what's visually acceptable. Yeah, I, I love that distinction, right? Something that that could be physically possible, but visually it has to really aesthetically stand out, especially in a, in a movie. And I'd love to use that as a bridge to talk about your work on Attack of the Clones, because one of the things that I've seen that you were able to work on was what considered to be like the iconic shot of Attack of the Clones, which is that seismic charge and the asteroids breaking apart with Django's ship. I'd, I'd love to talk if, if that was part of that same process of, of finding these individualities, or, or how were you kind of uh, approaching that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's similar, right? Uh, with everything, you know, this wasn't, that didn't have to deal much with as particle. Mm-hmm. Which is great. So with particles, you know, you have like billions. And back in the days, you didn't have the same computing power now, where you could just brute force everything. Mm-hmm. So you actually have to come up with software algorithms and design of systems that made it efficient for calculation. To uh, now, you know, that you, when you can't do, use brute force. I remember that shot. You know, we were talking about the sequence. Supervisor wanted. Uh, I was I think it was Marcus White. I, I think that was the name. But he wanted to uh, create an asteroid. But be able to control, destroy the multiple million pieces, but be able to control which part, you know, gets cracked at what density, and also be able to control each fragment as it comes out. So it's a very unique, and so it's like a, a, a combination of physical simulation and also uh, particle animation. And you know, so in physics, it, 
you can't, you wouldn't be theoretically be able to control that as it, you know, spun out. But you wanted to have that ability. So it was, it was an interesting, like, um, a hybrid problem to solve. And basically, what ended up happening was we really didn't use much physics at all because at the end of the day, you could kind of the things that you would be focused on, people would be looking at, would be in front of camera, and that would need to be animated. So at the end of the day, we really didn't want, have to work with thinking about what uh, you know dynamics and uh, dynamic collisions or, or or things like that. We we could let the animators kind of cheat that, and that would have been much more cost effective. So after like multiple iterations, that's what we settled on, and basically that shot. I created the main software I created was just called Slice, and basically it allowed you to chop up a solid geometry into multiple, you know, into a you know a customizable, um, you know, shattering algorithm um, that used a lot of the CSG stuff. And ironically, it's it's weird because it took a lot of time just to do the cuts because there's like floating point and uh, double floating point precision. When you divide things, you know. Because you lose some precision, things don't necessarily is perfectly, you know, differ by 0.00. Mm-hmm. And it might be off by a floating point error and stuff. And that, especially when you change computers, there's also different floating point precisions. And that calculation made it so difficult to be precise about where you cut. So, like, when you know when you're cutting right in the center, it sometimes will just, like, crap out because, you know, the, the precision is off. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that, that kind of came in. But at the, at the end of the day, it was just a, you know, we created a cracking algorithm, and that asteroid was pre-cracked. Mm-hmm. The animator basically used my algorithm, randomized like, you know, 100 times or something, or, you know, many, many times, and found, okay, this is a crack in, that I like. I'm going to use this as the basis, and then now I'm going to simulate everything using the initial uh, particle velocity of everything and then uh, animate everything else. And then fine-tweak it later on. With by hand. That's so cool. I, it's, I mean, it's really incredible the amount of, of, of steps and effort and people to just create one shot, especially, you know, yeah. on the visual effects side. And I, I mean, you worked on Attack of the Clones in that capacity and a little bit on Revenge of the Sith as well. Are there any other shots or any other challenges that still stick out to you these, you know, 15, 20 years later? Ironically, I mean, they're all different, right? It's, um, you know, because I, I, I like conveyor belt stuff on the, on the, uh, Attack of the Clones. Uh, I'm trying to think what I did on Revenge of the Sith. I did some stuff with the pod racers and stuff, but you know, I think I think the the Perfect Storm wave and you know the asteroid shot are the two that really you know is the one that you know sticks out the most for me. Yeah. Uh, because that was those were like stuff from scratch and trying to have to figure out everything, and uh, it was a really fun problem solving, and those, uh, they definitely took a lot. And at the end of the day, you know, it's it's funny because like all this work that goes into it is now moot, right? Right? Because everybody else can all, already they'll built it into their software. Because we're not a software company. We're mm-hmm. you know we're a visual effects company, and our R and D is basically okay. The software can't do it. What can we do so we can get the movie out now? Right. So we were always ahead of the time, but a lot of it is hacked. I mean, I don't think we would probably be able to, you know ship it out as a software because, you know, we can't give users a port and there's always, I'm sure, you know, as yeah. you know, computer programs are like, you take 90% of the time solving 10% of the problem, you know, because, you know, it's, it's going to work for 90% of the cases. And that's good enough yeah. for ILN because if it crashes, well, just try again, you know, or if they need something tweaked, they could just call me and I could fix that specifically for that case and those kind of things. So, but it's 
that goes moot because software companies will just fold it and then all the all the water software is now back in there. All the CSG software is now part of Alias, you know, right. all that stuff. So it's it's kind of funny, like it's a flash in the pan and it's uh you know it's kind of a, a snapshot in time for us. Uh, but back in the days it was cutting edge and you know, we pushed the envelope because we needed to. The other side, your acting and your creativity, I'd be curious about working in tandem, were you trying acting at the same time that you were doing these effects or what was your process then to then I mean your your first major role that I remember you in was in Scrubs and then of course uh, your role in Heroes were you balancing that at the same time that you were working at ILM well about, about ILM what I did you know when it was in San Francisco that's where the headquarters was or San right. Rafael you know everybody had a hobby or you know extracurricular activity people were in bands people were in artwork you know people would do things so you know people were encouraged to do things outside and you know, I took acting classes, and and you know, and and you know, I, I got an agent while I was there, mm-hmm. and you know, they put me up for industrial and commercials. And I was kind enough for me to let me you know go audition, you know, because mm-hmm. they knew I get I got the work done. I would come in on nights and weekends to make up for the time, so I never caused you know delays. And most of the time, so I was waiting for people because you know I would get things done. It's like, oh, okay, now what, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so they were. They were okay uh, under the radar, you know. I, they were fine with everything I was doing, uh, and then I got to a point where I got like two acting projects that were sad that that forced me to become union. And this was right after like Perfect Storm, and I'm like, ah, oh, man, this was a three year you know ordeal. I was stuck on. I wasn't. No, well, I was. I hate to use the word stuck, but I was on one project for a very long time. And it kind of uh, exhausted me a little bit, mm-hmm. so. I kind of just decided to like, you know what, let me take time off and go to uh, L.A. and try acting. Ireland's not going to go anywhere. Uh, let me just try this, you know, and give this whole acting thing a try. And if it doesn't work out, come back, you know, and then be like job of the hut, but tell my grandkids, you know, hey, I gave the whole acting thing a try. Huh? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I did that, and then, of course, my money ran out very quickly after three months. Um, so I was looking for a job. And then ILM, you know, while I was looking around, ILM was kind of saying, oh, well, if you're going to look for another job, you know, why don't you just work for us from L.A.? Uh, you could telecommute. Mm-hmm. And then, but I had to sign a contract saying if I did not get a recurring role on a pilot, wow. a recurring or a serious regular, on a pilot or a supporting role on a film, within my first year after signing the contract, I would have to go back up to San Francisco. And for me, I was, at that time, I'm like, sure, why not? You know, yeah. like, here should be enough for an actor to know if they can make it. Uh, you know, because the way I thought it was going to work, I, I would walk down, you know, Hollywood Boulevard, Spielberg would come drive next to me and say, hey, you kid, I want you in my next movie. <laughs> and that's how it worked. Right. Right. I was <laughs> super naive, but at that time, I was just like, oh, sure, why not? And I signed it. I was very fortunate enough to get a recurring role on a pilot that didn't go, uh-huh. uh, or it was like FF just started. I remember, I remember was called straight white male and I had a recurring role and that was enough to satisfy the contract but at the same time Island was very happy with the work I was doing in LA mm-hmm. they knew that they you know their employee you know, their supervisors were satisfied and I would always go up to San Francisco you know every other month or something or every month or something to do a, a demonstration and things like that so they were saying you know what this is working why don't you stay in LA and we'll, we'll keep it at that and then from there, I got you know small roles and like you know, uh, you know as you say, you know, Scrubs and uh, Don 
Lana and Greg, Sabrina, and they like Austin Powers as well, and things like that. And and then it's about it was I think it was like uh, I went there two thousand can't remember this nineteen ninety I was there no I was there two in year two thousand mm-hmm. and then I think it was in five years uh, through the LA office uh, and then yeah, it's funny because the LA office shut down I had to move to THX and Burbank yada yada but it, it got to a point where it's like you know, headquarters were telling me like, look, we want to promote you. We want you to be a supervisor. But that also means that, you know, you would have to come up to San Francisco if you want to go that route. Right. Uh, and, you know, and going through the VFX soup and the R&Ds, that, that was my road to getting an Academy Award, which was one of the reasons why I wanted to go to ILM. Right. For me, I wanted, I wanted to get an Academy Award in both the technical field and the creative field to kind of show the younger generation that, that you don't need to be stereotyped and right. locked into one side of the they could use both. So that was kind of my inspiration and goal. So I was thinking like, okay, well, I had my shots in, in LA and acting. I had some things, but I've also realized the ceiling was very low. Mm-hmm. You know, I was going to get all these jobs, but you know, how many acting gigs, especially for Asians, were there at that time? Um, you know, I had to, I wasn't going to be long duck dong, you know, short round, you know, and mm-hmm. that was about it. Unfortunately, we had locked that came out that year, but you know, it was like, okay, I think there's really not that much stuff for agents. It was time for me to kind of like hang up and say, look, I had my fun. Uh, now I'll go back to doing uh, full-time uh, CG stuff. Not that I wasn't doing full-time, you know, because there was more work to be done. Uh, there wasn't as many acting, but I would be up in San Francisco and supervising, and, and that would be my final career path. So they said, go ahead. Okay, cool. Uh, so we'll, we'll plan on next year. You know, let's just finish off. You know, and then I... I just asked to give them, give me one more year. I wanted to try writing. I, I met a lot of showrunners in LA uh, who, who uh, I got to be friends with, and they told me, you know what, let's go ahead and sh- shop this around as a pilot next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then so I thought, it's like, look, I'll give this a try. If that doesn't work, I'm done. Mm-hmm. So next year I was going to leave. It was, I think it was uh, 2000. I was ready to leave. Uh, so my showrunner told me, like, go ahead. Why don't you... Uh, Finish off this uh, pilot season as an actor, and then next year we'll you'll try as an, a writer. Mm-hmm. And then if that doesn't work, I'm out of So that's that's how it was. And then my final pilot season, the first pilot audition that came was Heroes. Wow! And that changed everything. So yeah. That's pretty much during the last show. So. That's great. Oh, I mean. It is it is incredible again, like you were mentioning, like the usage of the left and right brains and showing that it's possible to do both and, and be successful in both, I think is such a powerful story and a powerful message. And then of course the character of Hero himself is so impactful and I was even talking about that with Mr. Grunberg, like it was such an interesting time where it was not cinematic or genre focused on T V at that time and it was very interesting to have Lost Heroes and Chuck coming out at the same time and all really focusing on these characters that were the fans, right? And Hero was obviously the hero's journey and the Campbellian aspect of everything really came through in the show. And I'd love to talk a little bit about your approach to him, as well as, I mean, the parallels to like Luke Skywalker, for instance, are applicable, but I'd love to first talk a little bit about your approach with Hero. My approach to Hero, I mean, I wasn't that deep in terms of like the, <laughs> the Campbellian stuff, you know, because uh, I, I wasn't as well-versed as I am now in terms mm-hmm. of the, the storytelling aspect. All, you know, for me, I, we had great writers, without a doubt. You know, we had Tim Finn, we had Brian Fuller, we had Michael Green, we had Aaron Collette, we had Joe Pacasti, Jeff, Jeff Lowe, Jesse Alexander. We, we really had the all-stars 
for that first season. Mm-hmm. And what they wrote was, was gold. For me, what I want to make sure is that to portray Hiro in, you know, in a, in a positive light, full of hope. Mm-hmm. And kind of like, you know, in a way that of the Japanese characters I grew up watching in the mangas and the animes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and that was important. And when it, when it comes to TV also, any character that you play tends to be a uh, kind of uh, embellishment or exaggeration of a part of who you are. It's an, uh, it's an emphasis on that. Um, you know, because you live with that character for so long. And then actually the writers start to write for you as well in many ways once they get to know you better. But for me, the hero was about that innocence and that curiosity and that childlike wonder that I have inside me. And I just want, that is what I kind of like approached in terms of uh, approaching the character was to just take that and kind of uh, embellish it and bring it out in the forefront and emphasize that aspect of it. And then just go on the journey as as he would, mm-hmm. rather than to you know, know what's going on ahead, I wanted to find out as he did as it goes forward. So, ironically, I did, really didn't think about Luke Skywalker in mind or uh, you know anything like that. I, it was it was just following and trying to live in the footsteps of hero and just enjoying the whole journey. And then, and then me as an actor, I was just enjoying the whole journey as well because this was my first series regular role, right. and it turned out to be. This huge hit that I never would have expected. You know, we, we were the, the underdog to all of a sudden become that, you know, big hit. And then, you know, for me, as, as, to be able to you know, portray an Asian character in a positive light and also in a leading role was also a, a very important to me. You know, it, he didn't have to be, you know, uh, you know, long duck done. He didn't have to be, you know, the, the camera wearing guy from like Gung Ho, right? You know, right. it's a, he was a positive, and to be able to, you know, give that promise, you know, I know accent was a thing, but for me, it's like, I, I, he's Japanese, so he's going to have an accent to start with, but then he showed Future Hero, which dropped that, and that completely changed the game for everything. I guess I guess the answer is just to approach it with honesty, and it's a lot of me in that character, mm-hmm. is all I can really say. I love that. I love that, especially because, I mean, I think the legacy of Hero... And even him coming back in the in the new series, and I think it's been such a journey for both the fans, and then seeing your progression through it as well as an actor has been a very rewarding uh, on both sides of the screen, I'm sure. So, um, I, I mean, to wrap it up, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I mean, do you have any upcoming projects that you're very proud of? Of course, your Mobius Games, I think, is such an interesting, again, example of that right brain, left brain uh, working in harmony. Um, but yeah, what do you have in the pipeline? What are you working on? Well, I mean... Outer Wilds, you know, we just released it on Steam, mm-hmm. uh, and it won the BAFTA Game Awards, so we're very excited about that. We have some things in the pipeline that we really can't talk about yet, <laughs> um, but, but, but we, are, we are still working on games, so, yeah. uh, so that's awesome. good. Uh, so we're very excited about that. But, you know, it, it, look, it's still in the forefront, you know, we just released on Steam. Uh, there might be a platform or two that we're still looking at, who knows, uh, but, you know, it's, uh, that, that's going well. You know, right now a lot of producing things is coming together. And, you know, a lot of bringing the Japanese anime and uh, and uh, TV show, uh, manga and anime to uh, live action on the Hollywood side, and that's been also a lot of challenge, but also a lot of a very gratifying. Um, and for me, it's about just trying to get you know building that community and expanding that community and sharing the love for all these wonderful Japanese properties and and letting the whole world see it uh, as well. So, you know, I, I mean just there's a lot of things going on. 
Uh, and I'm just grateful uh, to be part of it. And look, and I and I owe it all to you know ILM giving me that start, and then Heroes giving me the break and stuff. Um, and it's, it's ironic because if I were to get the Heroes role now, I'd probably play Hero a very differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in the day, you know, I knew nothing. Uh, I was very uh, wide-eyed, and I think that came out in the character, and, I, and I'm glad it did uh, because. Uh, I don't think I can recreate that. <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm glad you did too. And again, uh, thank you so much for coming on and talking and, and for everything that you've done. And I'm excited to see what's next and what, I mean, Attack on Titan was great and Death Note. I'm excited to see the, these new yeah, uh, adaptations because it is a great way to get that that part of entertainment in front of more and more people. So Exactly. You know, in Promise Neverland coming out. But one thing I just want to say to all the listeners that, you know, just believe in yourself, you know, it's like, Society has a way of labeling us at this, both positive and negatively. But the point thing is, like, you have to believe in yourself. And if you believe in yourself, other people will believe in you. Don't let, don't take no for an answer. Don't let anyone tell you what you can or can't be. I think it's a really important thing for me. So. I, I love it. That's a, such an incredible way to end it. Again, uh, Masi, thank you for coming on, and, and thank you for everything, and uh, stay in touch. Thank you as well. Right. Appreciate awesome. it. Yeah. An incredible thrill to be able to interview Mr. Oka, especially because his character, Hiro Nakamura, meant so, so much to me growing up. Thank you again for coming on the show. Next week is my interview with Disney Imagineering Scott Trowbridge, all about the creation of Galaxy's Edge, so buckle up. And as always, it is so appreciated if, right after the interview ends, you can go to the app where you're listening to this podcast and leave that five-star rating and review. It is so, so appreciated. That's all for this week. Until next Wednesday, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and of course, be with you.